Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 22. This podcast is brought to you by local sponsors and listeners like yourself. If you're interested in sponsorship, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Panya Newell. I'm also a professor in mechanical engineering. Many scientists and researchers spend nearly all their research time chasing grants, either directly or indirectly, such as traveling and speaking with different agencies and program managers. Many of them have experienced or been experiencing the high pressure of getting federal grants, which has produced many undesirable consequences in research productivity. Funding is a mean to an end, not an end in and of itself. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Anastasia Elgin, a principal member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories. I've known Anastasia for almost 10 years. She is one of the brightest geochemists I've ever known and I've ever worked with. She has an extensive expertise in molecular mechanisms of chemical reactions at solid water interfaces. Over the years, we have spent many discussions about advantages and disadvantages of chasing grants. And I thought it would be good to have her on the show so we can discuss some aspect of chasing funds with you all. So welcome, Anastasia. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Panya and Kim and Lucy. I first, this is very impressive that you're able to have this podcast and I'm that you're finding time to do it. And it's really incredibly useful to early career researchers and to mid-career and more advanced. This is a great resource. So thank you. Thank you so much for accepting the invitations. And so let's start by telling us about your personal experience about grant writings. For example, how long does it typically take you to write one collaborative proposal as a PI? And also, are you required to submit these proposals on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I have about 15 years of experience, kind of more grant writing, less grant writing. I started with a really early success. So I guess my first impression was not accurate when it comes to how easy or hard it is to get funding. I was just starting my PhD program. I was in my first semester and there was an announcement for a fellowship for research fellowship for two years that was pretty extensive supporting all the needs for a graduate student. So I applied for it and I got it on the first try. So it was like, whoa, I wrote a proposal and I got funding and now I have two years to do this research. So it was really exciting early success. And then of course, doing PhD, you don't write as many proposals. And then as a postdoc, I wrote a couple. And when I started as a staff scientist at the laboratories, now we operate more or less like an academic department in our group. So we have to write grants. And now it's probably three to five proposals every year that I do write. And the types of 
applications are very different. So the most, I guess, the one type that everyone's most familiar with is research grants, right? When you apply with a certain idea to test a certain hypothesis to do research. But there are other types of grants that are also really important. And for me, I'm an experimentalist. I have geochemistry laboratories that require really expensive equipment. So probably once a year, I also write, it's called a capital equipment grant to fund those big purchases. Then there are also user proposals to use user facilities. That's not a, a grant application per se, but it's an application you know, for resources to be able to come and use very specific types of experimental facilities. Interesting. Thank you so much for sharing those. It seems that more or less you are also like universities, but maybe the level of the proposals that each faculty, at least in my department, are expected to submit, it's more than that, which probably it's a slight different and maybe you guys go with larger grant here it's a smaller amount of funding but can you tell us a little bit about your department do they value external grant more than scholarly publications they really value both they value publishing especially if you publish a lot or in high impact journals and they certainly certainly value external funding success securing external funding. I would probably say that getting a big grant funded is a bigger thing than publishing one paper, but both are really important. Can I follow up on that? I wondered if these grants, uh, successfulness in grants, typically translate to promotions, or are they just you know, here's a star, you know, go on and do the next thing, or they actually take it to a face value. It's hard to connect one to the other, but for us, you know, getting funding, doing research, publishing, those are all pieces of building your career. And if you never succeed in securing your own funding and you always work on other people's projects, it is harder to justify being promoted, right? That's that next step of research where you're able to envision a research program and support it financially. So yes, funding success does factor in promotion, but it's not the only factor. Here at the universities, maybe it's a slightly different because I have much, much less experience than Kim and Lucy. They can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think securing funds has the heaviest way. Without that, I think you won't get tenured. <laughs> Doesn't matter how good you are in, you know, or how many proposals you write, you have to bring money, but maybe I'm wrong or my understanding is not correct. That's what I have been observing as well. So pure publication without funding would definitely not give you the tenure in most institutions that I know about. But having funding, but maybe slightly under par in terms of publication, oftentimes can get you to where you want to be. So it's almost like research dollars is more translatable in promotion than any other items. I was going to ask, based on your experience, what are the three main challenges in securing funds for research activities? 
Okay, I don't know if it's three, but let me tell you what challenges I think there are. Getting external funding is really, really hard. It's just so competitive. And as you all know, right, depending on the funding source, there could be 10, 15, 20 applicants per spot at the full proposal stage. So it's just competitive and you have to spend a lot of time and make those applications perfect, basically, to be able to get the funding. So this is a challenge because getting a good grant application written takes a long time. And sometimes when you hear that you were selected to write a full proposal, you only have four weeks and you have other responsibilities. You cannot drop everything and spend four weeks just writing that proposal. And a lot of times you have to finish it even earlier, right? And under three weeks because of the internal review requirements. So that's a second challenge that you're always on the clock. And if you do chase funding, and like you all mentioned, you have to bring in research dollars to be successful and to be able to do research and also to be able to grow in your career. Let's say you're spending quarter of your time or half of your time writing proposals. That means that's the time you're not writing research publications. So that's, I consider it a challenge and you have to keep it balanced. Would you consider the level of research activities a norm or what would you call the norm in terms of research activities as it relates to securing funds? Can I clarify? Do you mean like the percentage of time you were expected to spend chasing funding or? So yeah. exactly, whatever you think. So that's why I love this question because it gives you the opportunity to tell us what your perspective is. So my norm, I might pick on, you know, faculty members closing their doors and just writing and that's the norm. <laughs> So from your perspective, that norm you, you mentioned was the percentage of time, the percentage of your effort. So I would love to hear however you want to interpret that question. I'm open to your response. Yeah, there is absolutely no norm in my institution. We work on such diverse programs and the funding sources are very diverse. So it's really hard to define a norm because there are people who go most of their career writing just like enough proposals to count on one hand, right? And others write many, many more. So for our department that does operate more or less like an academic department, writing you know, anywhere between three and five proposals a year is closer to the norm and probably spending a quarter of your time on those activities is the norm. Now we also do things that are not quite proposal writing, but they are developing ideas, developing new research directions that help us be ready for when the proposal calls come out. So I do quite a bit of that too. So we organize working groups, we brainstorm, we have journal clubs where we discuss different recent papers and what we can do, you know, in those new and upcoming areas of research. So yeah, that probably takes another 10% of our time working with our colleagues and writing those pre-proposals or we call them white papers with where we put our ideas and what new research we would like to do whenever there is an appropriate funding call that comes out. So just as a follow-up, you mentioned 
writing or submitting three to four grants is the norm. That could be really intimidating to many listeners <laughs> because I don't even think about the number. I just think about whether or not my research fits with the call. And it, at the end of the year, if it was two, then that's the number that fit with my research. So my question is, what do you think is healthy? So do you think that that bar of three to four is healthy or do you think it should be dependent on the research or whether I am an experimentalist versus a theorist, whether I typically collaborate with smaller groups of people or larger groups of people. What's your perspective on what is a healthy grant culture, air quotes? Yeah, this is a really good question. And, you know, I have such a narrow perspective because I know, you know, what it takes to write and they, because they are so time consuming to write proposals, you don't want to spend all your time. But then also when you write the publication, let's say you wrote a proposal, you have a successful, you know, you get funding, then I want to apply to use user facilities. And so I would pick parts of that proposal and they form the basis of that user proposal later on. Or I know some groups would take that proposal and turn it into a literature review and turn it into a review paper. So a lot of times that time spent writing proposal, you actually already contributing to other activities that you would have to do anyways. So I think it's healthy if it's not overwhelming. Like you don't want to be sick and tired and have to keep writing proposals. It's a creative process. So if you feel excited and if you read and get these ideas and put them on paper and brainstorm the new step and feel good about it, I think that's healthy. So I think it's an individual, you know, bar, <laughs> how many you want to do, how big, how small. And as long as it's productive, you should keep doing it. That was a great answer. Thank you. Well, I think a lot of it is because the successful rate is so low in general. And if you would like to hit a certain target in terms of actually getting those funding or a certain amount of funding, that kind of back calculates how many proposals or, you know, big or small combinations of them, how many you would need to write. I almost calculate like that. You say if you have 15, 20% successful rate, assuming you're a good grant writer, for example, so 15% or 20% successful rate, you would like to average out to get $300,000 a year in grants, for example, then you, you can calculate, right? Based on the size of each grant that you're writing, you want to target that certain amount. Now, who sets that goal of getting $300,000 a year? Not us. <laughs> it's definitely not us, right? Someone else is setting the bar. I just want, years ago, I remember this uh, very well-known, established pioneer in my field. He was already 60, 70 years old at the time. He's still very active in research. And then he said, you know, 30 years ago, that was the most productive time in this research area. And we were not worried about funding. We were all worried about who and how to get good quality research out. And therefore, during that period of time, there were 
lots of, I would say, classic papers coming out. And people still are quoting them today, you know, reference them all the time. And he said, now it's totally different world. Everybody spent more time chasing funding, but getting the funding does not directly translate to good quality research, right? So what do you think? What are the main reasons that researchers are chasing these various sources of funding right now? Is it because everybody else is doing it or is it because someone is driving it somewhere? Well, I don't think anyone is driving it intentionally, but I'm from Russia originally. So my academic career started there and there were funding sources, but the research had the stable, you know, year to year budget that we had to work with. And it was very, very small budget, but it was stable and you could count on it and not spend a lot of time writing grants if you didn't need to. When I came to the U.S., it was a little bit of a shock to me because I felt like academia here is fed by principles of maximum production and competition for resources. And also, maybe I also think that the newer generation faculty, some of them are more aggressive and they are creating this new culture, whether they want it or not, they are contributing. Like when they talk, they talk about, oh, I submitted five proposals last month, or I did this. So when you talk with somebody who's continuously talking or bragging about, oh, I brought five million on this grant, five million. I see it all the time on LinkedIn. I told, I guess, Lucy once, it was at the beginning of the pandemic that I saw this person. I don't know that person, but it just showed up on my screen. And it said that I've had a very successful pandemic year. These are my three proposals that they were funded only today. And each of them were a couple of million dollars. So I think that we are contributing whether we want or not to changing the culture. I don't know how we can go back. And also, I think that there are not enough resources. So we have to survive. We have to get tenure or we have to get promoted. Otherwise, we lose our job. And so there are so many things that they are contributing. But I do think that we cannot take ourselves out of the picture. That is true. That is true. A lot of competitions and then you know, we've all grown up to compare ourselves to other people, right? We kind of live and fed into this competitive nature. That's probably how we got here in the first place. <laughs> we all have to work very hard. We all have to do many things above and beyond many other people in order to get here. So I'm not sure if you're aware, some of these funding opportunities, especially the federal ones, are often made to only available for U.S. citizens and, you know, permanent residents. Do you think these type of funding opportunities should be more globalized just so that research on the research front alone that we can all share resources or this is not a, so, such a good idea? What do you think about that? Of course, science is global, right? And we all read each other's papers and the knowledge evolves 
regardless of the borders. And yes, in my experience, and I'm sure in your experience, when you work with foreign collaborators, it's almost impossible to get joint funding sources. So the only way to collaborate is really, I have my source, you have your source, and we're interested in similar things and we work together and we collaborate. So I agree, I think, having some sort of a more open opportunities where people from different countries can participate in truly fundamental research that has impact in many different areas, I think that could really help us to move forward. And I wanted to add to the previous question that you were mentioning about newer faculty being really competitive and having to always you know, work at the top of their abilities to stay competitive. I think a lot of good science does come from competition, but even more good science comes from collaboration, from sharing ideas. And so having support to do that could be transformational. I love that. Yeah, I think idea is good but it's probably very difficult to execute. That's probably why we're not there yet. I mean, obviously we're at a much lower level to make that kind of decisions. It's just for pure scientists or pure engineers like us, it's almost like an ideal world that we want to get into. But in reality, (laughs) I'm sure there are many obstacles other than science that would be in the way. Yeah, well, of course, it's all majority, I guess, of science is funded through taxpayer money, and it's hard to justify using it on international projects. But there are some models, so I'm hoping eventually it'll become more commonplace. Yeah, so maybe we should have like a pot of money that every country that they can afford, they can contribute or the leaders in the scientific field and engineering field, they can contribute and then they start having competitions across the globe. And that would, in my opinion, would increase maybe diversity and it would be more beneficial that people from different countries, they can work together toward the same goal. So you talked about your personal experiences, some of the culture in your department, and also I'm I'm sure that through your collaborations with the university folks, you are aware of some of the challenges in academia. Can you tell us what are your thoughts to make the system better, not just at the national labs and not just at the universities as a whole? So that builds on what I already mentioned. I truly believe that collaborative science is the best science and free flow of ideas is what's needed. So from the practical point of view to make that happen, and I see it already is happening, is really bringing people together and funding larger teams, especially interdisciplinary scientists who normally would not necessarily come together, but when faced with a big research problem, they do come and work together and accomplish great things. Another thing that I wanted to mention, it's also one of the challenges that Kim asked me about earlier. So I think one of the challenges in stringing different funding pieces together is keeping your research continuous. Uh, A lot of times, you know, grant is three years on average, If you're lucky, it's five years. If it's just a seed grant, it's one year. So you're putting those pieces together 
And a lot of times you have to change directions. And unfortunately, I've seen scientists who we would invite to give a talk at our session that we organize at a conference. And we want them to present on a certain topic that they are working on. And they would say, hey, my funding ran out, so I'm no longer working on this topic. And to me, this is truly heartbreaking because as a scientist, you know, there's always that next step, next step, next step, and you're never done. And so having those hard stops is really difficult and could really hinder progress. So bigger teams, interdisciplinary challenges. So we have cross pollination of different ideas and making funding more continuous so people can really build on their expertise and have this continuity of research that's incredibly important for a scientist. Well said. I hope the funding agencies listened and they hear us when we release the episode. So do you think that funding agencies will be satisfied if you prove your hypothesis was wrong? Do you think there's any value? Yes. As you all know, negative results or failed experiments, they're nearly impossible to publish. However, rejecting hypotheses and I don't know if I want to equate it with failure, but yes, rejecting your hypothesis is an important and integral and inevitable part of research process for funding agencies and for publishing entities. Of course, they're more interested in positive results in something you discovered rather than you prove that, oh, this in fact does not happen in an experiment. My own approach is to build your research hypothesis in a layered way. This way you can have something high, high risk and, you know, it's likely it's just not going to work. It's going to fail or it's just not the right idea, but it's just so risky and out there you want to include it. So you start with very high risk idea and then you build around it something medium risk and you pad it with something low, low risk that you know 90% is going to work and you can collect that data and you can publish something on that work. So just build it as a cabbage or a layered cake when some of the things are not quite achievable, but if they work, you'd be very, very successful. I was going to say very much the same thing. I don't think agencies would be dissatisfied with failing hypotheses. If they do, then people will stop doing high risk type of research. Right. So because they don't encourage it and then people will stop taking those high risks hypotheses into their research, then what's the meaning? Then we're hardly making any progress. So I think it is to be encouraged. I would say that there's no such thing as satisfactory or dissatisfactory. It's simply saying, here's a hypothesis. We proved it wrong or we proved it right. Either way is a path forward. One question, do you think a three to five year period is enough to make a revolutionary advancement in your field or in any field? If not, why do you think that funding agencies stress that researchers aim for a revolutionary idea when they submit their proposals? 
Yeah, this is an excellent question. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, big breakthrough. Everybody wants that big breakthrough, that next step. That's something really tangible that they can say we achieved this. This is difficult to answer because sometimes the answer is yes. Because our research field may be so mature and it's just ripe and it's at that tipping point when this bright, knowledgeable person is in the right place in the right time. And, you know, that paradigm shifts and we have that big, you know, quantum mechanics is conceived or something that big and wonderful. It's very rare. However, it can happen in three to five year period, but it's really very rare. And the majority of science is, of course, very slow and systematic, and you have to repeat it and reproduce it. And you have to devise a hypothesis and test it and make new observations and just continually chisel and chisel and chisel. And in that case, yes, you'll make some discoveries in three to five years. But as you know, it's really hard to make something truly revolutionary. And those little you know, chiseled pieces as you're getting to something big, that's just necessary. It's part of research. We would never make any big discoveries without that gradual buildup of the, you know, big buildings, big things where you can climb on top and see that next step and make that next discovery. So I would say, yeah, let's all hope to make big discoveries. But reality is, is that the majority of research is not going to lead there. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for sharing your thoughts and accepting the invitation to come and tell us a little bit about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.